Thank you, Stephen Zork. Thank you, Stephen Zork and Kenneth Logan and Corral. And thank you, PA. That's an original composition. You heard it right here. The words of Christ our Lord. Don't let your heart be troubled. You now live in a new normal. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in me. Believe also in God. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, how's it go? That where I am, there you may be also. Holy Father, we thank you for that promise. Living in this hour of earth's history, oh, how grateful we are for the words of Christ. Dear God, let today's teaching, please, there's a lot of distraction going on right now. Let today's teaching be received with clarity. Let it be given with clarity. And may we not live the same. For having gone to Holy Scripture right now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's see what your uh, grasp of European history is and current events. I'm going to put two Germans on the screen in consecutive order. First, face it goes on the screen. See if you recognize who this man is. Let's put him on the screen. What's his name? Call it out. That's Martin Luther. That is a well-known face in the United States, Martin Luther and Germany. 495 years ago, right now, Martin Luther was huddled over his table, crafting and scratching and scribbling challenges to the church he loved with all his heart. 495 years ago right now, plus 11 days, he would clutch in his hands those 95 challenges and he would step through the leaf-strewn orange and brown and yellow on the village plaza, striding up to the bulletin board of the university, the wooden door of the university church, hammer and tack, pounding onto that door 95 theses. Little did he know that with the spark ignited by that single hammer blow, he would start a conflagration that would eventually spread across human civilization. And we know it today as the Protestant Reformation. I say that with a, with a tinge of poignant sadness, since I fear that most of Protestantism in the third millennium has long ago abandoned that Reformation. It certainly has in Germany. Last September 21, last year, for the first time in history, contrary to their written document of the Constitution, the German Parliament, the Bundestag, invited to its presence 
An individual that the liberal politicians of Germany excuse by saying, listen, it's okay that he comes. I know it's not supposed to be, but he, he's the head of a state, so it's okay. Conservative politicians, by the hundreds, absented themselves. Former members of parliament were brought in to fill the empty seats. And when Benedict XVI, the pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church, addressed the parliament, I have, I have a script of his message. After greeting with niceties the, the introduction that he'd received from the president of the Bundestag, who, by the way, had introduced him as a head of state, he quickly moved to a correction of that notion with these words. But the invitation to give this address was extended to me as Pope as the Bishop of Rome, who bears the highest responsibility for Catholic Christianity. In issuing this invitation, you are acknowledging the role that the Holy See plays as a partner within the community of peoples and states. Let there be no confusion. I am not here as a head of a state. I am here as a head of a church. But I have a role with all the states on this planet. Wow. This is Luther's Germany? Two days later, September 23, September 23, Benedict XVI gathered with the EKD, the Federation of 22 Lutheran Unified and Reformed Protestant Regional Church bodies in Germany, headed by the council chair, Nicholas Schneider. He gathered in, of all places, the Augustinian monastery where Luther began his journey to the Reformation addressing the Protestant clergy of Germany and the others. I have the text of his remarks as well. As the Bishop of Rome, one paragraph into his remarks, it is deeply moving for me to be meeting with representatives of the Council of the EKD here in the ancient Augustinian convent in Erfurt. This is where Luther studied theology. This is where he was ordained a priest in 1507. For him, theology was no mere academic pursuit, but the struggle for oneself, which in turn was a struggle for and with God. And the word that went forth from Erfurt, September 23 of last year, is we have six years, five now, until the 500th anniversary of the 95 Theses from that German, that young German pastor and priest and professor named Martin. In five years, our mission, we shall be as one. Luther. Luther, who would end up calling the church he loved Babylon and breaking away from it. How did Martin come to that conclusion? And is his conclusion still valid today? What does it mean? The very first mention of Babylon in the Apocalypse, as it turns out, is in the theme passage of our miniseries we began last week. Open your Bible to the book of Revelation. Three angels, one warning. Three angels, one warning. Our theme passage, Revelation chapter 14, the first time the word appears, not in angel number one, but in angel number two's warning. Last week, charismatic confusion. This week, Babylonian confusion. The next time we're together in two weeks, I'll be in Scotland preaching next week, and in two weeks, by the way, don't miss next week, Evan Knott, the leader of our student body on campus, 
spiritual leader will be here to preach. But in two weeks, just before the, the United States presidential election, part three, American confusion. Revelation 14. Let's plunge into this. You didn't, bring a, you didn't bring a Bible. Grab the pew Bible in front of you. You have your smartphone. You got your uh, little tablet. Find it, please. Revelation chapter 14. If you have the pew Bible, it will be page 830. Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw... This is the first angel. We, we were there last week. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel or good news to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying in verse... Verse 7, with a loud voice, with a megalophone. So this is a megaphone shout, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And now angel number 2, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon, there it is, the first appearance in the apocalypse. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Wow! What is angel number two about? Even if you are reading this for the very first time, there are embedded enough ID markers to begin to assemble a picture. Let's do it right now. Grab the study guide. You got a study guide in your worship bulletin? Pull it out right now. You're going to want to keep this study guide. Let's jot down the ID markers. Even if this is the first time you have ever Read Revelation 14, verse 8. Ushers, can we do that real quick? Come on, let's do that. Bless you. Thank you, twins and others. All right, we've got some great ushers here. They're coming your way. Hold your hand up. If you don't have a copy of this study guide, you're going to want it. You're up in the balcony. Hold your hand up. We'll get it to you. You're watching on television. We're delighted to have you. Let me get the website. Put it on the screen for you right now so that you can get this same, same study guide. This one you'll want to you'll brood over. All right, you see it now on your television screen, your laptop, because you're, you're tuned in live streaming somewhere on this planet. We're delighted to have you. There's the website you see at www.pmchurch.tv. Go to that website, pmchurch.tv. You're looking for a new miniseries, Three Angels, One Warning, Babylonian Confusion. Can't miss the big banner at the top of that website. You'll see it, Babylonian Confusion. Click on there. It'll take you to the to the word, study, the word study guide, click there. You'll have the same study guide. And by the way, one of our worshipers wrote in an email last week and said, you know what, Dwight, why can't we just do these on our smartphones on the spot? You can now. Go to the website. If you have, you have uh, the uh, technology, go to the website, www.pmchurch.tv. Click on the study guide. You can fill it in. You can archive these. You'll always have them with you with that little piece of technology. So you can go right now, and you can fill them in just with your thumbs. All right, let's go. Let's do a facts check, a facts check on Babylon. I want to, just out of the single line, what can, we, what can we surmise? Number one, jot it down. Facts check number one, Babylon must be symbolic. Come on, write in the word symbolic. Why? Since the great city had ceased to exist by the time John wrote Revelation and has not arisen since. has to be symbolic. <clears throat> the Persian king Xerxes eliminated Babylon, destroyed it centuries before John wrote Revelation. So by the end of the first century, as he's writing it, there's, there's hardly a trace of Babylon left. So that's, that's fact check number one. Here comes fact check number two. Babylon is the only other name. You can get this from the three angels. Babylon is the only other name besides God's to appear in the three angels' warning. Who, whoever Babylon is, whatever Babylon is, must be a big deal because only God and Babylon get named. Fact check number three. And Babylon exerts, did you notice that? 
a universal power of coercion. She can make all nations, whatever it is she is, she can force all nations to respond in a certain way. Wow. Therefore, Babylon, jot this down, fact check number four, Babylon must be a very significant superpower in the divine endgame of Earth's history. Wow, if you can force the entire planet to follow you, you're no small institution to deal with. Fact check number five, Babylon falls or collapses just before the return of Christ. Last week we read verse 14, immediately following these three angels and their one warning, Christ, Christ returns. Babylon collapses when Christ returns. And fact check number six, the twin headline of Babylon's final collapse is fallen, is fallen, is good news for some people on earth. Write in those two words, good news. Why? Because the you remember in the first angel's warning we just read, embedded is this, 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 uh, this preface to all three, the everlasting good news. So clearly there will be people on earth for whom the fall of this apocalyptic superpower is very good news. Now that's just from a one-time reading of that single line. So what do we know so far? We know, number one, that Babylon is a symbol of a superpower. What, what else is Babylon? She has universal dominion and exercises it just before the return of Christ. We can just, just like that. You've never read the text before. However, there's more. Let's move from a facts check to a roots check. We're not going to the dentist. Let's do a roots check in ancient history. Jot this down. Number one, this is fascinating. Some of this you've never heard before. Number one, Nimrod, jot his name down, Nimrod was the founder of Babylon. Have you heard of Nimrod? You ever heard that name, Nimrod? Okay, you have. Nimrod was the founder of Babylon. I want you to see this for yourself. So we're going from the Bible's last book now to the Bible's first book. Go to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 10. Find it in your Bible. Don't just read it off the screen. It will be there on the screen, but find it in your Bible. I want you to see this. We're going down to the roots because cryptically embedded in the Genesis account will be enough clues to understand how Babylon will behave for the rest of her existence. So go back to uh, Genesis chapter 10. We have the family tree of Noah. So here we go. Noah's out of the ark with his three boys and their wives and his wife. Now, verse 1 of Genesis 10. Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to these boys after the flood. So now we want to follow Ham. So drop down to verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizarim, Put, and Canaan. Now we want to follow Cush. So we drop down to verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod. There he is. Cush begot Nimrod. He, Nimrod, began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. Verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was... Babel. Now, it lists all the other cities he founded, but the beginning of his kingdom was the, was the foundation of Babylon itself. Now, there's more about Nimrod. Would you jot this down? See, we have to go a little deeper on this. You wouldn't have guessed it just by reading. Here, here, here is a roots check number two. Nimrod's name was from the Hebrew verb marad, which means to rebel, right in the word to rebel. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint renders verse 9, Nimrod was a mighty hunter against the Lord. Now it reads here, before the Lord, but Septuagint has already taken his name into consideration and his behavior, and they say, no, 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 no. He was a mighty hunter against the Lord. 
Keep writing. Nimrod turns society. Isn't this fascinating? He turns society from patriarchal. You know what patriarchal is? Every little family has a patriarch. It's just a bunch of little tribes and we all have our revered elderly one. He turns society from patriarchal to write this word down and notice the spelling, monarchical. What's a monarch? It's a ruler. Goes above all the tribes. I rule all these tribes and you're under me. And thus he was the author, and write it down as well, of imperialism. He is the one who said, I'll take all of you and you'll be under me. And we'll form a confederacy. That's how Babylon got started. One more. He was the first. This is uh, root check number, number uh, four. He was the first to carry on war. Isn't that something? The first to carry on war against his neighbors, and he conquered the regions from Assyria to Libya. All right, hit the pause button right there. There are 12 of these root checks. But let's just hit the pause button right there. What do we know about, uh, what do we know about Babylon's roots? Well, its roots are in rebelling against God. Its roots are ruling over people. And its roots are resorting to force in order to rule. We know that just from the story of Nimrod. All right, now here comes uh, roots check number five. Under Nimrod's leadership, the Tower of Babel, write that down, the Tower of Babel was attempted. Everybody knows, you can be an atheist and you know the story of the Tower of Babel. Everybody knows the Tower of Babel, where God came down as they were building this tower into the heavens. God came down and confused the languages. Now notice the ambition that Nimrod and his followers had. Verse 4 of chapter 11. You're right there in 10, so go to, go to chapter 11. And they, these people who had moved down from Mount Ararat, where the faithful were living, they moved down to the plains. They said, we want to get away from these others. We're going to have our own little kingdom. And they, verse 4, said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. There they are, ladies and gentlemen, the twin sins of Nimrod, the twin sins of Babylon. They are the same. The twin sins of Babel, they are the same sins. Jot them down. What are the twin sins? Number one, the twin sins of Nimrod and Babel. Number one, doubt of God's Word. What did God told them in chapter 9? What did God told the saved human race? I will never again destroy this earth with water. Ever, ever, ever again. And I'll put a rainbow to prove it. They said, ah, you can't believe that. He'll do it. Doubt of God's word. And notice the second one. Second sin, defiance of God's will. How do they defy God's will? Because in chapter 9, verse 1, God says, okay, Noah, you and your boys spread out over the earth. They said, we're not going to spread out. We're going to be a confederacy. Nobody will be able to conquer us and we'll build a tower so high that not even God can touch us. Wow. That's the beginning of Babylon. Babel. All right. Number eight. Roots check number eight. Thus Babel became the defining root of Babylon. Babilu, that's Babylonian for gate of the gods, or Balal, which is Hebrew for to confuse. And so I put the two together because they're a play on words and they're intentionally put together. The confusing gate of the gods, little g gods, the confusing gate of the gods. That's how Babylon began with Babel. The confusing gate of the gods. Hit the pause button right here. Okay, so what do we know? What do we know so far? Well, we know in this second set, obviously defiant. The roots of Babylon are a defiance against God's Word and God's will and a sowing of confusion. Confusion. Look at verse 9. Genesis 11, Therefore, 
Its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. We are told that if that confederacy had gained strength, it would have destroyed righteousness on this planet. And God says, you can't do it. You can't destroy them. Give me time. I'll confuse your languages, and now you'll be separated. The roots of Babylon. But, but there is one more roots check that is essential for, for us to grasp the magnitude of symbolism of, of Babylon in the apocalypse. Here we go. Millennia after Nimrod and Babylon, Babel and Babylon, the prophet Isaiah crafted a taunting proverb to the king of Babylon. Fascinating. I never noticed this until I studied this last week. I want you to read this taunting proverb. Go to, go to Isaiah. You need to see it in your own, bi your own Bible. Isaiah chapter 14, specifically targeted at the king of Babylon. Isaiah 14, what's the page number in uh, this pew Bible? 468. Isaiah 14, I want you to see this. A taunt, a proverb. Let's pick it up. Fa this is, this is extre extremely fascinating. Is there a power, is there a king behind the king? That's what we want to know. Is there a king? Could there be? Roots check. This is, this is verse 3 now, Isaiah 14, verse 3, and it shall come to pass, Isaiah writing, in the day the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow. Judah, you're in for a horrendous time. You're going to be taken into Babylonian captivity. I know it's going to be awful, but I, I have some good news for you. When the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage you had when you were in exile, verse 4, on that day you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. So hold on now. This is now going to be spoken against the king of Babylon. And you will say, the rest of verse 4, how the oppressor has ceased. The golden city ceased. Drop down to verse 11. Your pomp, king of Babylon, is brought down to Sheol, that's hell, and the, and the grave. And the sound of your stringed instruments down in the grave. The maggot is spread under you and the worms cover you. You're going to rot in a grave one day. Of whom does the prophet speak and taunt? Verse 14 Verse 12, rather, how you are fallen, king of Babylon, from heaven. O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. That would be God's throne. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High yet Verse 15, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Roots fact, number eight, jot it down. Lucifer, clearly Lucifer is the invisible king of Babylon. Number nine, his original sin. I will be like the Most High. Write that down. The original sin of Lucifer. I will be like the Most High. Turns out that's the defining sin of Babylon in the beginning, Babylon in the middle, and Babylon in the ending. I will be like God. Roots fact number 10. From its founding, Babylon has been a storefront for Satan's kingdom and rule on earth. He needed to have headquarters. And Babylon was his choice. Number 11, 
Thus the great war between the forces of light and darkness in sacred history has ever been a tale of two cities, Jerusalem, the citadel of God, and Babylon, the citadel of Satan. All the way through the Old Testament, Jerusalem, Babylon. All the way through the New Testament, Jerusalem and Babylon. The story of this book is the tale of a war between the two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. And finally, roots fact number 11, Whatever the apocalyptic Babylon turns out to be, this roots check reveals that its prevailing sins will be three. Number one, disobedience of God's Word. Jot that down. Number two, defiance against God's will. And number three, desire for God's throne. How did Martin Luther come to the conclusion he did? Well, think of what we just read. This little, this last little patch of roots facts. What do we know? Satan is the power behind Babylon. Therefore, it's a religious power with an ambition to be God. And clearly, it is the enemy of God's people. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Don't take my word for it. Do as Martin Luther did. Take the word of Holy Scripture for it. In fact, let's just, let's just review what you just scribbled down. You don't have this in your study guide. You can do this on your own, but let's put it on the screen. What do we know about Babylon? It's a symbol of a superpower. What do we know? It's, it, it is a superpower with universal dominion. What do we know? Just before Christ returns, it exists. It is known for rebelling against God. It's known for re ruling over the people. It's known for resorting to force. What do we know? It is defiant against God's Word and His will. Sowing confusion. What do we know? A puppet for the fallen Lucifer's rule on earth. What else do we know? It's a religious power with the ambition to be God. What else? Clearly an enemy of God's faithful. And finally, it will be destroyed by God at the end of time. So here's the question for you. Martin, who do you think, who do you think Babylon is? And Luther, without a, a moment of hesitation, he answered that question three years after, boom, boom, 95 challenges to the church he loved. Three years later, Luther has made up his mind. He now knows, just as you've seen it, he now knows who Babylon is. And so he writes a book. October 1520, it is published on the Babylonian captivity of the church. In this book, it is one of the most strident apologetics of all Luther's writings. It is just in your face. What does he do in the book? He takes the seven sacraments of the church that he loves, the church of the Middle Ages, and he throws five of them out. No longer the sacrament of, of confirmation. No longer the sacrament of marriage. Of course, there's marriage, but it's no longer a sacrament. No longer the sacrament of holy orders. That would be ordination. Now it's the priesthood of all believers. No longer extreme unction at the last breath of life. And no longer the confessional. No more confessionals. He keeps only two. And he keeps them on the authority, he believes, of the fact that Christ founded them. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. And then he writes this line in his book, the Babylonian captivity. I'll put it on the screen for you. Martin Luther writing three years after nailing up the 95 Theses. If they, and he's been referring to what he calls the Pope and all the Romanists, if they do not abrogate all their laws and traditions, restore proper liberty to the churches of Christ, and cause that liberty to be taught, then they are guilty of all the souls that perish in this miserable servitude, and that the papacy is identical 
with the kingdom of Babylon and the Antichrist itself. End quote. How do you... What do you believe the Babylon to be, Martin Luther? Without equivocation. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, from our, from our vantage point in history, we now know that it was not only Martin Luther who from a study of Holy Scripture arrived at this startling conclusion, predating Luther, John Wycliffe, predating Luther, John Huss, contemporary of Luther, John Calvin, following Calvin, John Knox, Luther's associate, Melanchthon, in Switzerland, Zwingli. In fact, will you jot this down, please? Leroy Edwin Froome in his four-volume magnum opus, Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers carefully chronicles the long line of Bible expositors from the early church fathers to the Walden Seas to the later reformers who over the centuries arrived at the same compelling conclusion Luther did. Babylon is an apocalyptic symbol for the fallen Roman church. Keep your pen moving. She was never to be a symbol of the people of that church. Luther never made that assertion. Nobody makes it today. She is not a symbol of the people of the church, but rather an apocalyptic symbol of the geo-religio-political power, right in that word power, that Rome would become during the dark and middle ages, a figurative symbol of the global superpower that Rome will become again just before the return of Christ. Angel number two. Read it again. Revelation 14, verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon, Babel, confusion. Hey, have you noticed this? Have you noticed this? Satan's most effective weapon has always been the arrow of confusion. Have you noticed that? I mean, with, in the Garden of Eden, with, with Eve, what does he do? He starts out with a very confusing question. It goes like this. Has God told you you can't eat from any tree in the garden? <laughs> what? We can't eat from any of these trees? He inserts confusion, his first words in Holy Scripture, and he draws Eve into his deception. Confusion is still his most debilitating weapon today. And the church that Martin Luther called Babylon is still a religion of confusion today. Confusion over salvation, wherein the church extols faith in the Savior while she exalts the Mother of God as nearly our sole redemptrix. Confusion. Confusion over sexuality wherein the church extols moral purity while some of its spiritual leaders practice secret sin now being exposed like a pedophilic plague to the public. Confusion. Confusion over benevolence, wherein the church commands charity to the poor while her coffers are now reputed with substantiation to contain more gold bullion than all the governments of the world. Confusion. Confusion over the day of worship wherein the church candidly declares that while the Holy Scripture commands the seventh-day Sabbath, she has the authority to overrule the divine decalogue for the sake of her preference for the pagan day of the sun. Confusion. 
Confusion over origins, wherein the church declares that science can claim atheistic evolution for the human body as long as the church can lay claim for the human soul. Confusion. Confusion over political power, wherein the church declares her otherworldly preoccupation, all the while practicing a zero-sum brand of, of political manipulation and intrigue with the governments of this earth beyond the German parliament. Confusion. Confusion over lordship, wherein the church declares her allegiance to Christ while reputed cabals of allegiance to the dark Lord are given cover within her. Confusion. Throughout history, Babylon has ever been Lucifer's storefront center of global operation, and confusion has ever been his modus operandi. What did you just read from angel number two? And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. But hey, choir and worshipers, I mean, what does Babylon have to do with the likes of you and me? I mean, please, who cares? Huh? Could it be? We practice, we, I'm talking about you and me, could it be we practice the same confusion? Let me, put a, let me put a text from the Apostle James on the screen for you in the NIV. James 4, 4, put it up, please. You, he's writing to the Christian church, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Would you please write this down? To be married to God and be sleeping with the world is fornication. Write it down. It's what an adulterer does. Married to one, but sleeps with the other. How dare we point our fingers at Babylon for her promiscuous adultery with paganism while we ourselves are sleeping with the same pagan world. Let's just talk about this campus. Let's talk about the ways the same pagan world we can sleep with as students at this university. Let's consider the ways that we might be the same as Babylon, imbibing of wine that sucks us in. For example, sleeping, sleeping with the world's sexually explicit culture and entertainment and music while we sing, oh my Jesus, I love thee. Confusion. Sleeping with each other. Sleeping with each other while we pray our Father who art in heaven. Confusion. Vicariously, and by the way, the heart of the word vicarious is vicar. Substitute, vicariously feeding on the gratuitous violence and crime that are the grist for the books we read and the movies we watch while we hum, I would be like Jesus. Confusion. Parents investing tens of thousands of dollars in a Seventh-day Adventist Christian education, well, all the while we live as rank and godless pagans but still sing, when we all get to heaven, hallelujah. Confusion. Confusion. 
How dare we point our finger at Babylon for her fornication with paganism while we ourselves are sleeping with the same pagan world? Confusion. Fallen. Fallen is that world. It was made all nations of earth, all youth cultures, all culture, drink of the wine of her fornication. Confusion. We feel so smug identifying Babylon as outside of us when in fact we are sleeping with the same pagan world. And by the way, those of you that have your, 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 your mental arms crossed, well, give it to these kids. Trust me. Trust me. You can be as old as Moses and be confused and sleeping, sleeping with the world. Under what you had planned for tonight, and you're in your 60s, are you? Confusion. Don't try to dismiss this and push it off to somebody else. We point the finger. As the kids say, three fingers are pointing back. Right? So how can we be, how can we be spared this wine of confusion? I know of only one way. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ. Con go to Calvary. Go to Calvary and there see Jesus approached by the Romans. Romans, yep, Romans. He's approached by the Romans, bruised and bloodied already by their previous torture. But they approach him with some cheap wine, and they say, drink this. Notice the record of Jesus on Mount Calvary, Matthew chapter 27. But when he had tasted this, this, he would not drink it. Cheap wine. He would not drink he would not drink. Instead, he went to his death, refusing to drink the Roman wine so that we might go to our deaths one day, perhaps refusing, as he did, to drink the wine of Rome. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, that great city, because she's made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. How can Christ's courageous refusal become mine, be, can become yours? Here's the key. Look at his life. Look at his, look, 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 look. Look at Jesus, immersed in the Word. Immersed in the Word. When Lucifer comes to him in the wilderness and he holds out that chalice of cheap wine, confusing wine, when Lucifer says, drink this, notice how Jesus refuses the wine. It is written. It is written. It is written. Jot it down, will you? Jot it down. The Word of God is the only defense, the only antidote for the wine of Babylon. It is written. I stand on this Word. Oh, I want to take you in this last moment back to Martin Luther, standing before the, the, the jurist. The emperor himself is there, the boy emperor, Charles V. Luther, Luther stands put his picture back up, but now we have the words of his final defense. Luther stands before the prelates, the high cardinal. Unless I am convinced by proofs from scriptures or by plain and clear reasons and arguments, I can and will not retract, for it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. The only defense 
against the wine of Babylon is the word of God. I stand here. Will there be a people at the end of time who, like Martin Luther, stand there? There will be. That apocalyptic classic, great controversy, put the words on the screen. None, none but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. But, hallelujah, God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrines and the basis of all reforms, end quote. God will have a people on earth. Brothers and sisters, I want to be among that people on earth. How about you? God will have a people on earth, the Bible and the Bible alone. Here I stand. I can do no other. I want to be in that people. I don't know when time is going to run out for me or for this planet, but as long as I breathe, I want to stand just like Martin. I want to stand just like Jesus. Listen to me carefully. One of these days, and it may not be as far as you think, the Protestants of America will line up in an endless line to shake hands with Babylon and say, at last, we are together again. And when they call your name and hand you the silver chalice of that cheap wine, will you buckle because the whole world is following after Babylon? Or will you, like Martin, say, Here I stand on the Word of God. So help me, God. Amen. I have a lot of Protestant friends who watch this telecast across the nation. I want to say a word to you right now. The Reformation is 495 years old today. But where is the Reformation in your community? Where is this stance on Holy Scripture where you worship? I want to say to my Protestant friends, my friend, the DNA in our faith the DNA in our heritage is that we will take sola scriptura as our only basis of authority. I don't care what communion you belong to. You can make a decision within your communion. You can make a decision to stand alone on the Word of God. You can make that decision. I invite you to. You say, Dwight, I, I, this is too confusing. I need, to, I, need to, I need to think about this. In just a moment, not in front of this group, but I'm going to make a special offer to you. I'm going to offer you an apocalyptic classic called The Great Controversy, and it's embedded with a story of Luther. I'll send it to you, no charge. I'll give you a way to get a hold of me in just a moment. But Protestant friend, you might be a Protestant pastor. We have in this community many who listen. I want to appeal to you. You're a leader. God has raised you up. Stand here and your people will follow. Stand here and they will follow. I also want to say a word to our many Roman Catholic friends who watch here in Michiana. There are thousands of Roman Catholics here, and we are honored for every one of you who tunes in every Sunday. I want to make an appeal to you. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic. He went to Holy Scripture, and in his veneration of the Word of God, he found truth that radically changed his life. He, 
he followed the light that shined upon his pathway. You're saying, Dwight, this is all so new to me. I, never, I was never taught this in Catholic school. Don't worry about it. That same book, I wish, you would, I wish you would contact me. No charge. I'll send the book to you. Why? Because we are nearing the end of all things. It's time once again to do as Jesus did. Don't follow Luther. Follow Christ and stand on the it is written of God's holy word. And I tell you what, my friend, when the chalice is handed to you, you will have the courage of Christ to know how to respond. We must respond. Take out your Connect card. It's in your worship bulletin today. There are two responses today that I want to invite all of those who are worshiping here, our guests and our members alike, the choir. Those of you who are watching online, you can get the same card. It's all there. Just two responses. Put it, make sure we get your email address clear because you're going to ask for some material, I predict, and we're going to, we need to send that material to you. Your name and that information on the, on the front. The back side of the card we call the My Step Today side of the card. In just a moment, we're going to receive these cards, but there are just two suggestions here. Here's the first one. As a child of the Reformation, I too want to be immersed in the Word of God. Can't you put a check mark there? I can too. Why not? I am a child of that re Reformation, and so are you. Put a check mark there. But here's the second one. I would like to receive a Bible reading plan that will guide me in daily Bible study. I want to tell you something, my friend. You put a check mark there. In 48 hours, within 48 hours, and you can do this online, within 48 hours, we will send to you a Bible reading plan that will take you on your own into God's Word. You won't be reading other books. You'll be reading only God's Word. It'll bless you tremendously. I've used it myself. We'll send it to you. Make sure we have your email address clear. And in that second box, I'm interested in. Some of you here are saying, you know what, I really, if Jesus were to come tonight, I, I, uh, you know, I'm just not into that friendship very much these days. If you'd like us to send you a way you can get back in or for the first time get into that friendship with Christ, put a check mark here. You can do that online, by the way. Put a check mark here. We'll send it to you within 48 hours. I know it'll bless you. I want information on baptism. Fine. Information on the church. I'd like to receive, I don't want you to notice this last one before we pray. I'd like to receive Bible studies. If you would like to get into the Word as, as Luther did, put a check mark there. We'll make sure that those Bible studies come to you. Right now, I'd like to invite you to bow your head with me as we prepare to worship with the return of our tithes and offerings and these little connect cards. We'll put them as our ushers come by in the offering plate. Let's pray. Oh God, oh God. We look not to Luther today. We look to our Lord Jesus Christ who turns to us and says, Come, follow me. And so everything within our hearts wants to say, Jesus, I come. Accept our decisions, Holy Father. You are the only Holy Father we know. Accept our decisions, Holy Father and lead us in the footsteps of our Master and our Savior. And when the chalice is handed to us with the courage born of Christ, may we stand like Martin upon your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen.